0: Gary Knoll, broadcasting and video streaming live from our studios in New York City, I welcome you. We're broadcast all over the world in stations clear across the United States. Today, we are continuing with our ongoing series, Conversations with Great Minds, a conversation about the state of the nation and the forces that control it, the future of activism, and how to achieve greater social justice. My guests today are Andrew Harvey, an internationally renowned religious scholar, teacher, and author of over 30 books. He is the founder of the Institute of Sacred Activism, an international organization dedicated to inspiring people to become more active and vital in challenging our global crisis and to commit themselves to peace and sustainability. He was born in India, studied at Oxford University, where he was a fellow at All Souls College. Over the years he has taught at Oxford, Cornell, the California Institute for Integral Studies, and other institutions. And he is perhaps best known for having explored all the different religions in depth, particularly Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, and Sufism, and interpreting them in a passionate manner while also preserving their essential meaning and significance for our time. He's received many awards for his writing, including the Benjamin Franklin Award. And his most recent book is Radical Passion, Sacred Love, and Wisdom in Action. And before that, The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism, which won the uh, Nautilus Silver Award for Social Change. We are also joined today by Chris Hedges. Chris is one of our nation's most insightful cultural critics, social and political activists and authors. For more than 20 years he was a foreign correspondent in war zones and conflicts in Central America, the Middle East, Africa and the Balkans, having reported for the New York Times, Christian Science Monitor and other news outlets. And while at the Times, Chris received the 2002 Pulitzer Prize for reporting on global terrorism, the same year he received Amnesty International's Global Award for Human Rights Journalism. Over the years, he has taught at Columbia, Princeton, New York University, and the University of Toronto. Among Chris's many noteworthy books are *American Fascists*, about the fundamental Christian right, *Empire of Illusion*, and *Death of the uh, Death of the Library. His latest is *Days of Deconstruction*, *Days of Revolt*, a compelling, hard look at the most impoverished regions of the United States that have become what Chris calls. Sacrifice zones for the benefit of the powerful and wealthy. I welcome both of you to the program.
1: Thank you. Chris, uh, it's a great honor to be speaking to you. I really love your writing and have learned so much from it.
2: Thank you. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: As you both are aware, this is a program where we allow uninterrupted, substantial time to explore your individual thoughts, and uh, I have different questions for each and then some that will be shared by both. And I'd like to begin by reading a short excerpt, a quote from Andrew's book, The Hope. Now, this is when you met a head of a large agrochemical corporation at a meeting in preparation for the UN Conference on the Environment and Developing, held in Rio. This executive invited you to lunch And I want to quote what you said, because I believe this unveils a very hard socio-psychological truth related to the frustration and stress that many sincere individuals of deep conscience find themselves struggling with and facing, but are not fully aware of the full nature of what powerful people do and how they think. And in particular, for both um, Chris and also Andrew, I want you to Place this in the context of how many people believe that Barack Obama would be the one because he said he would do the right thing, and yet in spite did the wrong thing consistently, they still hold hope. And imagine, imagine that Barack Obama would have had as honest a conversation with the American public as this man had with you. Here's what he said. Rio will accomplish absolutely nothing because you do-gooders are so naive about the real world. Most of you that I have met truly believe that if the CEOs like me really knew what harm their corporate policies were doing, they would rend their Armani suits, fling out their Rolex-wreathed arms, burst into tears and change. This is madness and shows how little you dare to know about what is really going on. And how can you even begin to be effective until you understand... What you're up against. Let me tell you what you are up against. You're up against people like me. I know exactly what my company is doing and what devastation it is causing to thousands of lives. I should know. I'm running it. I know and I do not care. I've decided I want a grand, gold-plated lifestyle and the perks and jets and houses that go with it, and I will do anything. Bend the law, have people removed, Bribe local government officials, you name it, to get what I want. I know, too, that none of my shareholders care a rat's ass what I do or how I do it, providing I keep them swimming in cash. What limits all so-called seekers and activists that I meet is that they both shy away from the full realization of the power of the dark. The seekers I meet are, frankly, bliss bunnies, about as useful in the real world as a rubber ball would be in war. The activists I know enjoy denouncing others, but aren't at all in the same business of unmasking their own destructiveness, or their own self-destructiveness, of the dreary and banal self-righteousness. This blissful bunnyhood of seekers and the offensive self-righteousness of activists make it very easy for people like me to control the world. I know, too, by the way, that the dark forces I play with are playing with me. I'm under no illusion that I will not someday have to pay the price. Don't the French say the devil has no friends? I'm willing to pay that price in return for the pleasure of being able to afford this restaurant, in return for being able to bring up the President of the United States on my, my personal phone in front of house guests to impress them. Am I getting through to you? End quote. Now, I don't know who this CEO is, nor the specific company. I might guess it is Monsanto, given what executives have said in the past that are scandalous. Nevertheless, I would like to begin with Chris, because as a foreign correspondent and journalist for many years, who have certainly interviewed or met leaders who may have shared similar views and who are perfectly willing to abuse their positions of power and authority and wealth for selfish ends, if these are the kinds of people that we're up against... In corporations, government, and our intelligence agencies, Wall Street, mainstream media, then how can we best confront and expose them? Using George Lakoff's term framing, are we failing to know how we frame the moral argument to expose the treachery of the oligarchy that is utterly heartless about the well being of everyone who doesn't serve them in some way? And then in our current socio political situation, how would you frame those who share or espouse? Views of themselves and the world as expressed by this corporate executive. The form is yours.
2: Well, the, the the problem is assuming that we can appeal to these people rationally, and that they will give a rational response. Uh, by the time you reach that level within a corporation, uh, at Goldman Sachs or Citibank or. ExxonMobil or anywhere else, uh, you have essentially structured your existence around the attainment of quarterly profit, uh, the attainment of bonuses and high stock compensation deals and high salaries, and uh, I think most of these people don't look beyond... Uh, those uh, uh, enticements uh, for both both personal enticements and enticements for their company. I think very, very few of them have uh, any kind of a long-term vision. Uh, I think that they are slavishly devoted to the system of corporate capitalism, the dictates of the marketplace. They measure themselves Uh, or their own worth as against how they succeed within that system. Uh, I I think that the myopia is severe. Uh, I think that these people, for the most part, have no vision, real vision. Uh, I think, of course, they're deeply destructive, um, but I I think a lot of them are, are pretty clueless as to how destructive they are. Um, they love power, but they're enthralled with power, not unlike politicians like the Clintons or Obama himself. Uh, and uh, the attainment and exercise of power becomes the narcotic uh, that fulfills them. Uh, but, but you know where they're going, what they're doing. Uh, I think very, very few have any kind of real, uh, understanding uh, of anything beyond the uh, the day to day machinations of the manipulation of money and the manipulation of power for their own ends, personal ends finally,
0: have you been able to have a personal conversation with people who have at least been open and honest about their own dark side nature
2: well i you know I went to I got shipped off to boarding school as a scholarship student. When I was ten, so you know I actually have not only uh former classmates but even relatives on wall street and uh, some of them are just deeply cynical they they recognize that the system is rotten uh they are just trying to steal as much as they can as fast as they can on the way down now, their analysis of. Corporate capitalism is, would not be particularly dissimilar from mine, uh, but uh, for them, it's all about how much they can grab and how fast they can grab it. And so you find within uh, that upper reaches of uh, the financial class, uh, people who, who do indeed understand how rotten it is, but are just extremely cynical and extremely selfish.
0: Mm. Andrew, what would you like to share or add to that? And what are your perceptions about these forces that we feel ourselves up against and continue to distort information and distort reality uh, to pursue self-serving agendas?
1: Well, I would agree totally with what Chris has said. I think it was a very clear and typically ferocious analysis I would add from my own perspective that more and more I come to believe in what St. Paul calls powers and principalities, really profound dark forces that use people's selfishness and greed to get through their terrifying and destructive agenda, and I think the agenda is now the end of humanity. Mm. So I do think that these beings that Chris describes are actually servants of the dark, and. They're kept going by the dark, they're fed by the dark, they're sustained by the dark, they're protected by the dark, and at the moment, the dark is winning in ways that are simply terrifying to anybody who sees the world as it really is. And I think that our reaction to them is hopelessly naive. In spiritual circles, whenever I speak, as Chris speaks so eloquently, of the desperate selfishness and narcissism and cruelty of the corporate agenda and complete lack of any kind of regard for conscience, people scream and say, but they're just like us, they're people, why aren't you extending mercy and compassion? So there is no real understanding of the nature of evil, how it works, how it manipulates people, and no real understanding that It's quite clear by now the greatest and most powerful evil that we've invented as human beings is greed, and that we could potentially commit mass suicide through greed.
0: I appreciate that insight. A follow-up for you, Andrew. I have noticed in my travels around the United States, uh, filming a long-term documentary, it's about six years now, on poverty. It's called Poverty, Inc. Mm -hmm. And that there are oasis, there are places probably about 300, at least that I've been able to identify, where a quality of life exists, a standard of living exists that, that is so exceptional, where there's no crime, there's no uh, poor people, there's no ghettos, restaurants and theater and shops and golf courses. Uh, there's at least 20 million Americans living in gated communities, and then there is Everything else that is becoming more and more like the scenery in a Mad Max film. Yes. And yet, in this this society, we refuse to acknowledge how 240 million Americans or two thirds of the American population live. We refuse to look at their economies. We only look at the artificial constructed corporate economy like Wall Street, which is a complete bubble, or the bond market, which is a bubble. And there seems to be no interest in the mainstream media or the corporatocracy to focus upon what are the actual needs, what are the spiritual needs, physical needs environmental needs of everyone else in this wasteland so America's becoming more and more a juxtaposition between the oasis and the wasteland exactly. could you Could you take a look at this and talk about how we got here and how we have to understand where we're at
1: well. I actually live in Arkansas. I live in the Ozarks. And there is, it's certainly not a gated community. It's a community of poor, rugged, decent, absolutely strong-hearted people who support each other and sustain each other and are not at all intoxicated by the American dream. In fact, think of it as a nightmare and ridiculous. But of course, they have no public voice. I think what has happened is that Eisenhower's prediction that the most dangerous force of all would be the military-industrial complex has become completely true. The corporations control the media. The media is only obsessed with reality shows and celebrity and keeping going the myth of the American dream and will do anything to prevent any other picture coming through. And there is enough power in this now bankrupt dream to keep people enslaved and keep people without conscience for the millions of Americans who live in terrible conditions and are going through grinding poverty and terrible disappointment. I think that we 're really seeing the beginnings of the creation of the most terrifying fascist state in history, and it will only take a couple of dirty bombs and fabricated crises for the military to be called in and everything in fact is now in place for fascist dictatorship and i 'd love to know what Chris felt about that because this is something that is he 's constantly alluding to in his work, but I think the time is really here what we have a Omnipotent corporations, a completely enslaved media, a populace that is cowed by poverty and not being looked at or thought about, and a ruling class that has absolutely no conscience and is entirely a slut of power. This is a terrifying cocktail.
0: We're going to go over to Chris in a moment on that issue. That's a little later. But I have a personal question I'd like to address to each of you. And Chris will begin with you. I want listeners to leave today feeling more empowered and wiser to shed their fears and act upon their convictions and conscience in order to become more actively involved with causes and organizations they will draw towards. But most people are paralyzed by fear, something Andrew just mentioned, or the dread of the future, or they can't get beyond their disbelief that things are as bad as they are. And each of you in your own way has had to come to terms with both yourselves and what is happening in the world in order to become activists and speak truth to power, because you risk so much when you do it. And as Andrew just mentioned, uh, everything is in place. Many of us believe, I certainly believe, that we have been a police state now for a number of years. It's just that some people are realizing how severe it is. So my question is this. Provide the insight and wisdom for how we can get beyond the illusions that limit us and become more vital in social, political, and environmental causes. We'll start with you, Chris.
2: Well, I think the destruction of a print-based society has been catastrophic. Yes, And uh, I consciously now, you have to build walls, and I do build walls, uh, to keep myself rooted in print um in, in in essence in nuanced and um fact based historically based argument um and 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 it's not easy uh the, these electronic hallucinations are very intrusive um so i, I think that this shifting and i wrote that book, Empire of Illusion, The End of Literacy, and the Triumph of Spectacle that looked at that. I think that that shift from a print-based culture to an image-based culture uh, has been uh, deeply harmful for our ability to understand what's happening to us. Uh, We don't put anything in context. Um, There's a frightening kind of historical amnesia. Everything operates in a vacuum. It's Knowledge or what passes for knowledge is emotionally driven. Uh, we're very skillfully manipulated uh, by these forces uh, that certainly are very astute about human psychology and how it works and crowd psychology. Um, so it is extremely difficult to see what's happening around us. And I certainly agree with Andrew that, you know, we're very far down the road. I think that. Um, they have certainly run innumerable scenarios at the NSC and uh, about the effects of climate change, the effects of the looming financial collapse. Uh, and they have prepared, uh, especially under the Obama administration, uh, to create through the legal system mechanisms to criminalize all forms of dissent. That is what the... Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act is about, uh, which allows the military to carry out acts of domestic policing and uh, seize American citizens who substantially support. That's not a legal term. That's not material support. Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or something called Associated Forces, again, a nebulous term, strip them of due process and hold them indefinitely in military facilities. And when we won in the southern district court the obama administration has appealed it and we're waiting the ruling of the second circuit um, but when judge forrest wrote her 112 page opinion uh... declaring this section of the nda unconstitutional she brought up the uh, plight of hundred and ten thousand japanese americans who were interned uh, by the military without due process in World War II and said that this law essentially opens up uh, the possibility for the government to uh, imprison, uh, detain large numbers of people and strip them of due process. These are her, her words based on what they believe. So uh, they certainly know what's coming and they have, and this is I think what has been so frightening is that we have been so passive yes. as they have reconfigured the legal system to give themselves all the power they need to use draconian forms of force and control uh... to shut down uh, any kind of uh... dissent which they would of course see as instability Um my, my complaint with with the left is uh... that they are very pollyannish uh, we can't and i think andrew's right i we can't begin to effectively resist until we understand the nature of the power before us. Uh, and, and evil is the right word. I often say that, you know, in theological terms, these are systems of death. Yes. Um, that's what they are. The death machine. They're death machines, right. And it goes back to Freud, Eros and Thanatos. And that, uh, as Freud wrote in Civilization and Its Discontents, I think correctly, uh, these are the two most powerful forces. Uh, within life, that attraction to eros, that capacity to nurture, preserve, protect, and the capacity to thanatos. And having been in war, thanatos is a deeply seductive force. Um, that instinct uh, that calls for the annihilation of all living things, and finally for ourselves. And as Freud argues, these two forces are in constant. Uh, there's a constant tension between these two forces, both within the individual and within the society, and at certain moments, one or the other is ascendant. And we certainly live in an age where the death instinct is ascendant. Um, I have just reread and almost finished rereading Moby Dick by Herman Melville, which I think, you know, hands down is probably uh, certainly one of its not the greatest piece of American literature, but it is a very prescient study of evil. And, uh, of course, everybody is on the ship, the Pequod, named for an extinct Indian tribe, headed uh, on a mission that is about suicide. And they know it, Starbuck and and Stubb and the other mates know it. Uh, Ahab is quite upfront about it. My, My means are sane. My method and my object is mad, and yet nobody has the capacity to stand up to him. Not only that, everybody carries out. Uh, his instructions, uh, to the point where, of course, uh, everybody is, except for one person, destroyed. So I think that that's where we are. We're all on the Pequot, and and Ahab's in charge, and none of us are standing up. Uh, And fear is a powerful force. I I think, having spent 20 years of my life as a war correspondent, um, your perimeter of fear doesn't mean when you don't think, When you think you're going to die, and I've been in those moments, I I don't want to pretend that it's anything but horror. uh, But your perimeter of fear shrinks after you've been in that much combat. Uh, And so even 9-11, and I was at ground zero four hours after the Mm plane hit, did not have the effect on me that it had on uh I think many other New Yorkers because I'd spent I'd been in Sarajevo when it was being hit with two thousand shells a day. You 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 can become conditioned to that kind of violence. And I think that's given me a kind of freedom. Uh because I lived in environments where um, I mean there were moments when certain forces were trying to kill me. I mean actually in northern Iraq Saddam Hussein put a price on my head. Um and uh and so fear the the fear of the state, which was very skillfully used after nine eleven I think didn't have as much effect on me because of my own past uh but yeah people are are afraid, and the state is consciously making us afraid and uh I would agree with Andrew that you know we're one or two dirty bombs away, they're all ready to go uh and um uh, you know i I go back to. Václav Havel's 1978 essay The Power of the Powerless. I I, I think Mm. there's something just to living in truth, Um, and I think this is why the Occupy movement, uh, and it of course had structural flaws and everything else, Uh, but I think that it frightened the power elite uh, because uh, it was speaking a kind of truth that is is not allowed to be uttered, uh, certainly within the mainstream. So uh you know we we our only hope is to build mass movements i think we have to keep those movements nonviolent um i'm not naive enough to tell you they're going to work um I'm, that's certainly where i have put a lot of my energy um but i you know i despair i despair i mean just on the environmental crisis alone uh we have you know no time left really and when 40% of the summer arctic sea ice melts these corporations i mean we're talking about the death throes of the planet look at it as a business opportunity they rush up there to drop half billion dollar drill bits and mine the last vestiges of gas oil minerals and fish stocks it's in, it's utter insanity um, and yet these are the forces that have total control uh and there's no way to control them Uh, There's no, we have no mechanisms now by which we can restrain them.
0: Andrew.
1: I couldn't agree more with everything that Chris has said, but there is one hope, and that is that the system itself is totally unsustainable and that it will collapse. I think we should do everything to hasten that collapse, because if it doesn't collapse soon, it will take the whole world with it. If it collapses soon, there'll be something left for those of us who truly wish to recreate justice and compassion. I would like to say that there are four things that I think everybody can still do who is summoned by their own inner to react as a human being to this terrifying global disaster. Before I say that, I think there's only one real way of implementing the hope that I have and that is through a global grassroots revolution of love in action and I totally agree with Chris that for all its faults and haphazard improvisations, Occupy was a tremendous sign that such a thing is possible What I would advise people to do are these four things, and this is really at the core of the vision of sacred activism that I'm trying to inspire people with The first is get real about where we are, what we are up against, and the extent and danger of the crisis. Face it. Educate yourself about it. There is a great deal of accurate information available if you look on the Internet. There are some extraordinary books written by Chris, amongst others, that really put the problem in such a way that you have to be blind, deaf, and dumb not to get it. Dare to educate yourself because unless you are really clear about how everything is now at stake, you will still be seducible by the lies of the media and the dream of limitless growth. The second thing that I would really urge people to do is to plunge into direct connection with the divine. I call it the divine. You can call it the spirit. You can call it what you like. But plunge into direct connection with it and draw on its power and draw on its peace and draw on its strength and have a serious daily spiritual practice because as the situation gets worse, and it will get worse, The world will get madder and madder, and people will behave in more and more mad and crazy and violent ways. And unless you are deeply grounded in your deep self, in your spirit, by whatever definition you give it, you will be swept away or driven mad yourself. So there is, to me, absolutely nothing more serious than truly connecting with the inner divine with all the power at your disposal. But connecting with the inner divine is not enough. To retain your basic humanity in a time like this, and to be able to face yourself in the mirror at night, you really do have to be doing something. Even if you know, as Chris so eloquently said, that it may be of no avail. Just to stay human, that is essential. So what I advise people to do when they ask me, what can I do? What is my mission? I advise them to get up at three o'clock in the morning when the world is peaceful, and surround themselves by peace, and ground themselves in reality, and ask themselves one question. What of all the causes in the world breaks my heart the most? Dare to connect with the outraged heartbreak at the core of your being, and then make a commitment in the core of your life to do something real in your local community about what you've identified as your heartbreak. The fourth follows on from that, and that is that I don't think Anybody can do any of this alone. We need companions, we need friends, we need networks, we need people who feel like us, who will support us, who will sustain us in depression and defeat, who will celebrate our victories, who will be part of an alternative world. So what I've proposed as part of the Sacred Activist Adventure is the worldwide creation of what I call networks of grace. I studied Al-Qaeda, the various right-wing organizations, who are, of course, very much better organized than the liberal left or the spiritual left. My God, you couldn't be less organized than the spiritual left. And what I discovered is what everybody discovers who really explores those organizations, that they work in cells of between 6 to 15 people. They meet together, they celebrate together, they feast together, they pray together, they build deep bonds, and then they choose objectives. And I don't agree with any of the objectives, but the astonishing effectiveness of their alternative world organization is something that we now need to adopt So my prescription for people is, for God's sake, get real about what's going on. For God's sake, get real about connecting with your inner spirit, because you're going to need that connection more than ever. For God's sake, get real about the necessity for doing something, even in an impossible situation, so as to be able to stay human. And for God's sake, don't have the illusion that you can do anything important or real by yourself. Get in groups of people, start a network of grace, and start creating alternative worlds, alternative societies, which have some slight hope of being able to survive the collapse that is coming.
0: Thank you, Andrew. Chris, I feel that both of you would agree that as members of this society, we need to realize the need for equitable justice that acknowledges the rights of every citizen and the rights of citizens of other countries particularly the innocent and downtrodden and from the spiritual side we need to learn compassion and love then these two needs should be brought together justice and compassion in order to truly commence with a constructive nonviolent revolution but we are not seeing that yet so what are some of the ways you feel, carrying on with, with what you intimated, we can do to get that message out and mobilize people to think and act that way?
2: Well, I think, you know, Andrew's right that it's, it's about doing something. And I long ago, as a writer, decided that I wasn't going to tell people what to do, ever. I was just going to do stuff. <laughs> uh, and if they wanted to join me, they can. And if they don't, they don't. Right. So I just resigned from Penn because they, it's a small, probably insignificant protest, but they appointed somebody who comes out of the Clinton State Department and uh, supports preemptive war and has remained silent on torture and won't speak up for... Our country's most important dissident at this point, which is Bradley Manning, uh, and I, I won't be a part of it. Um, that's why I sued the president over the NDAA. Uh, that's why I go to uh, actions of civil disobedience and get arrested in front of places like Goldman Sachs. And uh, uh, it, I mean, Andrew's exactly right. It's about it's about action. Hope is. Hope has to be visible. Hope has to be seen. Hope has to be palpable. And um, uh, we can't wait for anyone else to step out. We have to step out. Uh, and I think he's also right about community. I mean, it's. I of course come out. I'm a seminary graduate and come out of the church. And whatever my relationship with the institutional church, which is contentious, <laughs> um, there's there's much uh, to be learned from religious community. And. Uh, yeah, community is key. Um, but I, you know, Daniel Berrigan, great radical priest, who I had dinner with a few months ago, ninety-three. Yes. He said, you know, we're we're called to do the good, or at least the good insofar as we can determine it, mm. and then we have to let it go. That the Buddhists call it karma, but for us, faith is the belief that it goes somewhere that the good draws to it the good and i think that's what faith is that all of the empirical evidence may say that what we're fighting for is futile and maybe even impossible and faith is the belief that no good act and i don't believe that you know we as paul says if we're We look through a glass darkly. I mean, you know, our vision of good may not be quite someone else's vision of good, so I'm certainly aware of, uh, you know, that absolute good is is not something probably we can grasp, but there are good actions, good things to do, acts acts of compassion, acts of courage, acts of truth. And um, and, and and we have to find sustenance by... uh, by carrying out actions that affirm uh, those values uh, and and affirm those values in a way that exacts a personal cost upon us. Uh, I I don't... it's easy to make moral pronouncements about things that are safe. Uh, But I would say that, you know, any act that doesn't bring with it a certain amount of discomfort and even hostility is probably not moral. Um, That that moral, that when you stand up like that, um, especially at the beginning, and I suddenly felt this along with Michael Moore and Gary and a few others at the beginning of the Iraq war it was a very lonely and very hostile position to be in i mean my phone message bank at the new york times was filled every day with hate filled messages and death threats and the only reason there weren't more is because they ran out there there wasn't any more room on the on the recording device um so i I think that those acts, carrying out those acts, give us the kind of, and because we don't do them alone, we do them in groups, we do them with community. And I've been arrested in front of the White House with Veterans for Peace, 131 of us, uh, and it was a, a very spiritual experience. Um, Uh, We, uh, Watermelon Slim, a Vietnam veteran, played, a great blues musician, played taps on his harmonica. It was snowing. Uh, Somebody folded the flag uh, that had been given by the family of a young man who had been killed in Afghanistan a couple weeks before. Everybody fell silent. Uh, Slowly, someone, there's a YouTube clip of it, somebody began to beat a drum in the snow uh, and everybody watched, uh, walked in complete silence, single file, 131 of us, uh, to the fence in front of the White House, where we were arrested. And uh, most of these veterans were in their old uniforms, whether from Vietnam, whether from Iraq, Afghanistan. Huge numbers of them were weeping. Uh, and... And what was interesting is that as we were handcuffed, it turned out that uh, most of the Washington, D.C. police force is in the National Guard and has been in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they would say to us, they would whisper to us as they cuffed us, keep doing what you're doing Mm. because these wars stink. Mm. Now, that act itself didn't stop the war in Afghanistan. It didn't even get covered in the Washington Post or my old employer, the New York Times. And yet it was a deeply empowering moment for all of us who were there. And I think touches on exactly what uh, Andrew was talking about, this sense of community, this sense of solidarity uh, that gathers around a truth, gathers around something real, makes uh, that self-sacrifice, and I don't want to exaggerate, you know, going to jail for a few hours is not a particularly it's a kind of boutique activism perhaps but it it um you know it sustains you for weeks and months afterwards and so i think that these acts of resistance uh i think finally uh deliver to us a, a real spiritual power and unfortunately within the church That spirituality, I think, has been corrupted into how is it with me, uh, which is really just a form of narcissism. Uh, As Buber understood, it's not about me. It's about the other. It's about my neighbor. And uh, when we reach out to our neighbor, uh, when we commit acts of civil disobedience together, uh, I think then we begin to get in touch with, with, the, with the wellsprings of a very powerful spiritual force. And, you know, Martin Luther King wrote about this, and I think it was Strength to Love, where in some despair his house, house has been bombed, uh, he's sitting alone in the kitchen and, and he, late at night, and he wants to give up, and um, and uh, and he's renewed empowered. He writes about it so very eloquently, and I want to butcher that passage. People should go read it. But it is precisely that. That, that for me, is a kind of authentic spirituality, and I think that that power is very, very real.
0: Let me continue on. Thank you, Chris. Let me continue on that concept uh, with you, Andrew. Two years ago, I was the keynote speaker at Earth Day at the UN, and in that moment that Chris is talking about, where you decide to step forward and there is a risk, there is an uncertainty. And this room is filled with environmental groups and heads of groups. And I decided not to, I decided to confront them. And the clip is up on YouTube. And I asked them, you know, I said, Where have you been? Where have you been on global warming? Where have you been on? on the acidification of the oceans, the destruction of the coral reef upon factory farming and genetically modified organisms, I don't see where any of your organizations have been anyplace. When have, when was the last time any of you had mass demonstrations against poverty in the United States? When was the last time you got yourself arrested? And you could see the tension building in the room. But I wouldn't stop until I ask a simple question. Is it not time that we surrender our allegiance to your organizations, the NGO, the Sierra Club, which we later found out had received $24 million secretly in cash from the Chesapeake Company that's the largest gas hydrofractor in the country. And and all these other organizations hadn't done diddly squat, yet the grassroots effort... Who do you think is out there fighting GMOs and getting them, trying to get the referendums on the bills in states to get them labeled? Grassroots people, people have no offices, no, no, you know, twenty million dollar year budgets. Uh, they're just people who are really concerned and impassioned about injustice, the social injustice, environmental injustice. So my question to you, Andrew, is it not time for us to turn away? from the corporate left, the MSNBCs, Rachel Maddows, all the people on the left who have not gone out there and sacrificed, have not confronted this president, have not confronted his his, uh, his defense department, or the CIA, or all the other departments, and, and instead turn to the grassroots who are willing to do that, even if they don't have the money, even if they're small groups, even if it's just possibly disorganized, so they can help at least start taking us forward. Your thoughts, please.
1: Well, I think one of the things that I love most about Chris's writing is his brilliant analysis of liberal hypocrisy. And I think that the left, and in fact most of the half activists I know, are much more content to analyze and to listen to people sounding off than they are to do anything to risk either their sinecures or their lives in standing up for justice. And I think the time has absolutely come to face that the corporations will not change under any circumstances until they are forced to, that the politicians are in the pay of the corporations, that the media is entirely in the pay of the corporations, and that the majority of what passes for intellectual discourse is just entertaining people as Rome burns. The only hope is in a grassroots movement. And that is what I'm concentrating my energies on. That's the only hope I see. Without that, nothing. There is no hope left in the old left, in the media, in the politicians, in the corporations. And anybody who thinks there is, is really on a drug I wouldn't want to be on.
0: A follow-up for you, then, on that issue. At at this historical moment, not only is there limited time for international community to exert any kind of substantial change to offset the looming catastrophes from climate change, in fact, all of the experts I've interviewed for a new film I've been working on for seven years on the 12 tipping points say four of the 12 are tipped. There's nothing we're going to do. So their view is this, that we had best start looking at how we can transform our lives and adapt to the catastrophe coming because it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. They're predicting Category 3 to 5 hurricanes on the East Coast in the next 24 months. They're predicting that uh, the drought that we have is going to be sustained for a long time, communities are going to run out of water, and it's going to get really bad. And we're absolutely in denial of any of this. Both the, the, the government is in denial, states are in denial, and different groups are in denial. So that said, um, what do you suggest is exerting a constructive change to preserve, let's say, free speech? So we can talk about this. The right to assembly, which they're challenging, which Chris has documented repeatedly. The, the challenge to real democracy, the challenge to social, radical, and gender equality, uh, or the just rule of law. And only recently I learned that under Bush... There was the creation of prisons under the innocuous name Communication Management Units. Now, these units of incarceration specifically target political dissenters opposing the stances of the Department of Justice and Government, including environmental and animal rights activists, and these have continued and expanded under Obama. So right now in the United States, I can say unequivocally and with absolute certainty and documentation that we now have political prisons, called communication management units, for political prisoners. So, where does that take us, when it's already begun, to start movements that address the truth of where we're at, so that those who are at least willing to be open can start doing something positive?
1: Well, I think that what you're describing is absolutely real, and it corresponds to everything I know. And I think what you're really talking about is that there's, the door is closing on any possible effective action. So we really need to be starting now. And I think the best place to start, in my opinion, and I'd love to know what Chris thinks about this, is in a massive Martin Luther King-like movement against the energy companies, against the continuing despoliation of the environment by the energy companies. I think that is the main problem and I think that more and more people are waking up to it. I'm by no means certain that it's going to work because it might very well provide an excuse for a much more massive display of force than was shown with Occupy. So we're not talking about surefire success. We're talking about a window of opportunity that is closing, the internet could very well be shut down or censored, the armed guards on every side of the street, there could be massive, massive excuses taken to bring in the military, We have no idea what is possible. In fact, I do and you do have a very clear idea about what's possible. So that means that we really need to get started now. And I think we need a very powerful global cause to concentrate our energies on. And that is the continuing death of the environment, which there are enough people deeply concerned about, but not knowing what to do for us to be able to start something if we really concert our energies and do it clearly.
0: I appreciate that insight. Chris, recently there's been a flurry of articles and studies and op-eds addressing the collapse of critical thinking among Americans. And this is not just among the average citizenry, but among those in power and legislators, lawyers and lobbyists and financiers. If people are unable to think critically, they're unable to make informed choices to vote on, they're unable to rationalize and see through the illusions of our media dumps, the upon us, uh, nor to discern the truth or falsehoods in the news. They're unable to question a doctor's diagnosis intelligently. Basically, they're unable to formulate any coherent sense of deeper meaning in their lives, nor devote themselves to a greater purpose other than struggling to survive and numbing themselves in mindless entertainment. And in dreaming, they can climb the ladder of Big Brother's food chain. So, So, Chris, you have critiqued the loss of critical thinking in America a lot and called out the illusions the majority of americans live by unless there's a turnaround what do you see as being the long-term consequences of an even more dumbed-down population
2: well the danger of that is that when things finally go bad yes, people uh... don't understand what's happening and i saw this in yugoslavia and so they become prey to demagogues who conveniently blame the weak and the vulnerable. In our case, Muslims, undocumented workers, homosexuals, feminists, intellectuals. And these proto-fascist movements that celebrate the gun culture and speak in the language of violence are pushed on by the most retrograde elements of corporate capitalism, the Koch brothers and others, to vent their fury... Uh, their legitimate sense of betrayal uh against these targets, and we already have um embodied in the Christian right and the lunatic fringe of the Republican party. maybe the whole party's gone crazy uh you know talk show hosts uh militia groups tea party we we have these these elements in play. So that because people have, in essence, been rendered in a state of perpetual infantilism where they've been fed this creed, this false creed, of course, by Hollywood and uh, Oprah and the Christian right and uh, uh, the entertainment industry, the news industry, that we can have everything we want. Reality is not an impediment to what we desire. We just have to believe in ourselves and uh, focus on happiness or uh, trust in Jesus. And and that means we never grow up. But as the gap opens up between who we think we are and where we think we are going, and who we really are and where we are really going, uh, so that finally it implodes in our face, hmm. then we react as children. And um, and history is replete with how frightening that moment is. Uh, and I and I, you know, the the when you call the dumbing down of uh, of the country, which of course is very real, uh, it, at moments of disintegration, has that kind of effect. It it empowers forces that are violent, um, deeply self-destructive, and ultimately controlled by uh, by the very elements that brought about the collapse in the first place.
0: I appreciate those deep insights. We're near the end of the program. and I I'm, just... s-
1: I'm so sorry. I have to leave because I have to give a talk on Jesus, actually, on the Shift Network. But I just wanted to say thank you so much, Gary, and thank you, Chris. I, I so look forward to meeting you and yeah, continuing great. our conversation. Thank you for your amazing work, both of you. God thank you. you.
0: Thank you, Andrew Harvey. Just a closing thought here. I want to paraphrase something this psychotherapist, Victor Frankel, wrote regarding his having been a Holocaust survivor who had experienced both Auschwitz and Dachau. And he said, under the conditions of the concentration camps, when it was absolutely impossible to change anything in his external conditions, he discovered he could still change his mind. And that was the single thing the Nazis held no power over, I believe that it's important to change our entire way of thinking today about the state of the country and the world before we attempt to act and find ourselves acting irrationally that can end up with negative repercussions and setbacks. And finally, there is this view that something sclerosed needs to die before something new and fresh can be born. This is universally found in most spiritual traditions, and it can also be applied to the rise and fall of civilizations and cultures and empires. Some say that America has reached the apex of its imperium and is in the throes of what will be the great death. But something else better will emerge from its ashes. Perhaps this view is the only real hope people can hold. And I believe that if America is a felt experiment now, and it must eventually, as Andrew believes, die in order to be renewed with the kinds of values and compassion and justice we have been speaking about on this program, then so be it. Chris Hedges, thank you very much for being with us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Gary. You've been listening to Conversations with Remarkable Minds. I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you all for listening.